Welcome to my podcast on this beautiful summer's day. I'm sitting in a little sitting room at the back of the castle, looking straight up the hill at a folly which was built in 1737. But it's called Heaven's Gate, and it sort of reaches your eye through the arch, and I imagine towards the clouds and the heaven. But more importantly, I'm sitting in this pretty sitting room with a very special and dear friend and renowned author, Shrabani Basu. Lovely to be here, Fiona. It's just great to be here and the summer day. <laughs> Shrabani, thank you so much for coming here today. I think, was it a summer's day that we first met at Henley Literary Festival? I remember it really clearly. I think we were both in the green room at the back and it was time for a bit to eat. And I saw this lovely lady sitting to one side, so I asked if you minded if I sat down with you. And we just fell to talking. That's right. And you were soon coming round. <laughs> That's right. It was just after Victoria and Abdul was published. And it was, uh, I think it was autumn, the Henley Lit Fest. And I think we were both hungry before our talks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it was, uh, yeah. And since then, I have come so many times. You've been really kind inviting me to this beautiful place, steeped oh, in history. <laughs> my God, it's been such a joy, Travelyn. And I remember, because I was so blown away to meet the author of Victoria and Abdul, which those who are listening might have seen the film, as well as, I hope, read the book and the film starred Judy Dench and I loved the film I was I was blown away by it she was an extraordinary woman Queen Victorian and I so enjoyed it was beautifully filmed Osborne House oh my goodness did you have fun when it was being filmed or was that a challenge for you as the author oh I loved it it was precious moments spent on set I mean what a treat, you know, my first book to be adapted into a film and it's made on this scale with Judy Dench and Stephen Frears as the director. It was an A-team, it was just wonderful. And um, she's such a professional actress, you know, she is just gives everything and it's, it's just fabulous to see her. She is truly inspirational. <laughs> And I thought the way it was presented was so interesting and I know we're all conscious of different people from different cultures, colours and classes today but do you know, I thought Queen Victoria led the way when I watched that and to try to learn the language, exactly. oh my goodness and she took it seriously Absolutely, so there was... You know, when I first started researching, I went to Windsor Castle and the archives and I asked to see these Hindustani journals because I knew she'd learned a little bit of Urdu or Hindustani. And uh, I was expecting a little phrase book, but the archivist walked in with a trolley and there were 13 volumes there. And she took it so seriously. There's an entry every day, whether she's on holiday in Nice, whether she's on the ship, whether... You know, there's a story that once Abdul was ill, but she was going to have her lesson. So she went to his cottage, propped him up on his pillow, mopped his brow and um, had her Hindustani lesson. So, yeah, she really took it seriously. And by the end, she was writing half a page of Urdu, which is amazing. <laughs> Quite extraordinary. What an extraordinary lady. And so that's where our friendship began. Mm -hmm. And... I obviously loved that book, so if people haven't read it yet, please pick it up. There are different elements to it, to any film, but I think the film captured the essence, which is quite unusual, I think, and oh, yes. harder to do. Mm -hmm. And then I know that after that, 
I inveigled your help <laughs> when we were trying to commemorate the end of World War One, mm -hmm. and I asked you to come and give a talk here. We were raising money for many different charities from different countries, and you were talking about um, the million men who fought for King and another country, which was intensely moving. Oh. Would you like to talk a little bit to that book? It was. I mean, it was real a real privilege to come here and talk to a very different crowd and tell them. Many people were not aware that one and a half million soldiers from India came down here, fought in the trenches, you know, in the mud and the cold. Um, uh, in the First World War. So there were turbans, men wearing turbans in these trenches that nobody knew about. And they went on to win Victoria Crosses, mm -hmm. uh, made huge sacrifices, of course. And it's just, uh, you know, it's just a moving, fascinating story. And um, people came up to me after the talk, Fiona, and they said, there was a lady with tears in her eyes. And I said, God, <laughs> that's not what I intended. But she was so moved. And... Um, yeah, it was really, really very special to do It was that. so special. And I I'd also was lucky enough to meet the Indian High Commissioner. Mm -hmm. And he and his team mm -hmm. had brought this amazing double-decker bus down <laughs> in which it could tell part of the story. He, mm -hmm. was, he was so charming. And he also gave a talk. And mm -hmm. again, people hadn't known that side of it. Mm -hmm. And that was extraordinary as well, it wasn't was. it? It really was. So, yeah, thank you for doing that. <laughs> no. And actually, I remember the ambassador, the American ambassador of the time, mm -hmm. came up to me afterwards and said, because he'd listened to the talks and said, he said, thank you. Oh. I didn't know that story. I didn't know that part of the mm -hmm. military story. And he'd also, I think, I think we all cried, actually. Oh. <laughs> And we probably oh. needed a glass of something <laughs> afterwards. But no, it was a fantastic day and I can't thank you enough for your contribution to it. And again, I was trying to turn something to raise money for today because it's today that we need the money and mm -hmm. cash is needed to support those who've been through experiences that we hope we won't go through. Mm -hmm. But that was that. And then what was the book after your First World War book? After that, it was uh, The Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer. Oh, it's The Mystery. That is the Which is my latest book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes a while. So that was published in 2015. And then it take, because of all the, my books are nonfiction, it takes me years to research. And uh, well, there was so much happening. Uh, I also work as a journalist. So it was the time of, you know, much political upheaval, <laughs> many prime ministers <laughs> coming and going. So, you know, there were there were Causes. Uh, but yes, that was the book. And it's about Arthur Conan Doyle, a true story. <laughs> well, it is a true story. So can I ask, how did you come across the nugget of this particular book? So uh, Arthur Conan Doyle himself writes about it. He writes about it in his own memoirs. Uh, uh, and he says he was really pleased to do this, um, you know, take up this cause. So I'll just explain what the cause was. Um, this is the only case that Arthur Conan Doyle investigates personally. Uh, so he wears the hat of Sherlock Holmes and he takes on a case. And the case is to do with a young Indian lawyer, well, of Indian origin. He's from Birmingham. And uh, he's been accused of a heinous crime of slashing animals. It's really gory. And he was imprisoned. Um, and then he wrote to Arthur Conan Doyle and said, help me clear my name. And uh, yeah, Conan Doyle rises to the occasion and says, takes up this challenge. And so the book is all about how he, uh, well, what happened, the backstory, and then how he 
investigate. So it's a bit of a thriller and you go through how he investigates this case and it's good fun. <laughs> it is good fun and I found the backstory absolutely fascinating as well and I mm-hmm. hadn't realised how the parties were then coming to this country and became a vicar. Do you want to um, relate that part of the story? Yep. So he was a Parsi. Parsis are Zoroastrians from Mm. India. And his father uh, was brought up in Bombay, converted from Zoroastrianism to Christianity, and then traveled to England and became a vicar. He was the first South Asian vicar of a small mining town uh, in Staffordshire. That's what was so <laughs> extraordinary too. It was. Quite a challenging place to be put. Yeah. And his wife was English. His wife was English. So it was, again, a really interesting story about mm-hmm. the prejudices of the time. Exactly. And I think as the reader, mm-hmm. hoping, hoping always for those glimmers of hope and kindness and compassion mm-hmm. and Perhaps it's the same today, you don't always find them. Mm -hmm. And then following the story of the three children through their lives, actually, and their desire to give themselves professional training Mm -hmm. and and be included. It's that thing about being included, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, you do, as you said, you know, you do look for hope. So even though he was imprisoned and there was all this back, you know, the anonymous letters accusing him of doing this, which is why the police just needed someone. They needed to arrest someone. They couldn't find the culprit. Well, so they arrest like, him. When I was reading, I was thinking of all the mm. the, back, the bad stories you have on mm. Twitter today. Oh. I'm thinking nothing is new. Yeah. And that's exactly what was going on at the same time. I, exactly. I was just, you mm-hmm. know, I my, my left and my right hand, I was thinking <laughs> yeah. how... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the institutional racism, even today in the police, and the, it's now more like unconscious bias rather than, you know, maybe the terms have changed. But it is still there. There's no getting away from it. And, you know, as recently as the COVID lockdowns, we saw who were the people who were locked down first, who were the people who were arrested first. It was always black nation. So, you know, there was a pattern. There was a pattern then, there's a pattern now. But there is hope. I mean, he had other good in Doyle, so that's the that's the fun bit of the story. No was... less than ACD comes to, you know, back him. And then the narrative changes because suddenly he's got stardust, you know. Sherlock Holmes is solving this case. And the papers change their tune overnight. And, uh, yeah, he... Well, I won't give away the ending. No, and I'm trying not to either. <laughs> oh, but it is is—it is a f- really... I mean, he's obsessed with the case, Arthur Conan Doyle. So it's, uh, you know, it's quite amazing to read those letters and see his obsession with the case and how determined he was to get, you know, justice done. And what's extraordinary is how he decided to pick the case up, you know, mm-hmm. those turning points, mm-hmm. which were perhaps a smaller thing in Arthur Conan Doyle's life, mm-hmm. but changed the life of the imprisoned young man who yeah. otherwise nobody else would have fought for him. No. So no. you just... Huh. I sometimes find the fragility of those coincidental, extraordinary decisions quite frightening. It is. And, you know, what can we say? I mean, good, good for him that he sat there and he thought that there's only one person who can save me, and it's Arthur Conan Doyle. Because in prison, he'd been reading the Sherlock Holmes books, and he had just read The Hound of the Baskerville, which had just been released. So he said, there's one man who can solve it, it's him. 
And he wrote to him. I still find that extraordinary stroke of luck that when Arthur Conan Doyle, for some reason, picked up the letter and replied. And I've, of, I've so often wondered, and I still wonder, why did he take that leap of faith? Why did he apply to that letter? Why that case? You know, it's really interesting because it's almost like what happens in his books. So at the time, this letter drops through his uh, post. Uh, it's a time when Arthur Conan Doyle was going through a very low phase in his life. His wife had died, his wife of several years, uh, had died a few months ago. And while he was nursing her, he'd fallen in love with Jean Leckie. So he was tortured by this feeling of guilt that he's now free to marry Jean and he's uh, mourning for his wife and all these feelings. And it's like the opening of any Sherlock Holmes a book where, you know, Sherlock Holmes is a little depressed and not, not you know, injecting himself with some cocaine. I mean, uh, Conan Doyle wasn't doing that, but he was in a, a, at a low phase in his life. And suddenly this comes and this excites him. This is something new. The fact that this is a Parsi obviously had its, you know, and he's this miscarriage of justice, which he wants to fight. And he wants to take this case up. He is, um, he in fact uh, compares it to the case of Emile, you know, what Emile Zola does in France when he fights uh, for Alfred Dreyfus and the Dreyfus affair. He says that happened to a Jew and this is happening to a Parsi. And he um, takes it up. He wants to be the Alf, you know, the Emile yes. Zola, <laughs> j'accuse and accuse yes. the Home Office of prejudice, of uh, racism, of incompetence. And uh, he is lauded by his fellow writers who say, you know, well done, because he was championing this cause, uh, a miscarriage of justice. So it all fit in really well. It came at a time when he wanted to do this. And then he gets married, Fiona. He marries Jean. And the only thing he's doing on his honeymoon is <laughs> writing about this case, writing letters to Anson. So, you know, the Hotel Daniele in Venice and someplace in Germany. But goodness, poor Jean, because all her <laughs> husband is doing is obsessing about this case. Yes. And he has like details. He investigates it. He goes to the U.S. I mean, you know, correspondence with the U.S. He's finding clues, uh, interviewing people, doing everything the police should have done. So it's a full-on, proper Sherlock Holmes-style investigation. And in fact, the opening, the first time he meets George Italji, it's a great scene. It's almost like what he does with uh, Sherlock Holmes, which is power of deduction. So the minute Holmes meets somebody and has a case, he's deducting things yes. without even saying a word. Arthur Conan Doyle does the same. He invites George Adalji to meet him at the Grand Hotel in Charing Cross. And he's a little late, so he steps into the lobby and George is waiting for him. And of course, he recognizes him immediately. He's the only Indian in the room, the only dark-skinned person. And he's reading a newspaper and he's holding the newspaper really close to his face. And uh, immediately he stands there, watches him, and he says, I knew he was innocent because he says he was myopic, severely myopic, and there was no way he could have crossed those fields in the dark and slashed animals. So here we are, Sherlock Holmes's deductions done <laughs> without even saying a word to George Adalci. <laughs> And that's their first meeting. <laughs> it really is amazing, that melding of fiction and reality. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and of course, we're in Downton Abbey, Wycliffe Castle. <laughs> yes. And in reality, you know, I've mm -hmm. just finished a book about the fifth Earl. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was Arthur Conan Doyle who then started yeah. the rumours of the curse, curse. of Tutankhamun. Exactly. And um, it was entirely his pen and his 
fictional belief that mm -hmm. then came out, yep. without which we might not have had the yep. curse of Tutankhamun. Yep, and he, because by then, this stage in his life, Arthur Conan Doyle was heavily into spiritualism mm. and seances and, you know, talking to the dead, because he's, he'd lost family in the First World War, and that hit him really badly. So he'd made a little shrine on his mantelpiece, uh, his son, his brother, his wife's brother. So, um, and then he just felt the dead communicate with us. And then this whole curse <laughs> um, stopped, picked up. And, you know, if it's being, it's being sort of uh, said by Arthur Conan Doyle, people believe it. And that's it. <laughs> Uh, so there it was. But it's interesting because after the First World War, there was quite a lot of spiritualism and belief in seances and mm -hmm. the the Fifth Isle of Carnarvon, I think, probably held a seance here as well. So mm -hmm. it was quite popular and fashionable. And mm -hmm. Arthur Balfour, who had been Prime Minister, mm -hmm. was also, I think he might have been President of the Spiritualist Society in Belgrave Square or something. So right. it was very much a la mode, which seems yeah. quite different now. But coming back to the story of Victorian Abdul, when I was writing the story of the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, his best friend, his best man, was in India, mm. Prince Victor Julep Singh. Oh. And Prince Victor Julep Singh oh. spent so much time here, he um, gave the grandmother of Geordie mm -hmm. the sapphire engagement ring, wow. which was because he was the godfather of the sixth Earl of Carnarvon. Really? Oh, He's, I didn't know that. Didn't That's you? Amazing. He and his Prince Victor Julep Singh and his became a great friend of mm -hmm. the fifth L, my character at Eton. All right. And they met there in the first year. He joined a little bit late. Mm -hmm. His father at that time was very much within the very close circle of Queen Victoria. Mm, of course, yeah. Reading all about that mm -hmm. and the Kohinoor diamond, mm -hmm. which I've written up in quite a big way, so I hope I can give you the book. Oh, lovely. Just again, mm -hmm. made me look back in awe at Queen Victoria. Yeah, yeah. She gave him... Prince Victor's father precedence mm. over all other dukes. She, she didn't see colour. Mm -hmm. She was no. an extraordinary lady in that way. She really was. She really was. It was it was amazing. Anyway, mm -hmm. Prince Victor had a marvellous voice and sang very well. Mm -hmm. Neither he nor the fifth earl were particularly academic students and they were always trying to bunk off. <laughs> and in his first summer term, mm -hmm. Prince Victor put five pounds on a horse in the derby. Oh. It was the biggest bet of any boy ever at Eton. Gosh. So he claimed great <laughs> notoriety. And he... Did he and, win? <laughs> I do, I'm not sure. Probably not is the answer, knowing his luck. And he and his best friend, mm -hmm. the fifth Earl, mm -hmm. were always bunking off school, oh. usually on Windsor Racecourse, <laughs> or they were staying with my, the fifth Earl's, grandmother in London or at mm -hmm. Chesterfield. So they became the best of friends. And Prince mm. Victor gave the fifth Earl a a present of a snake <laughs> to take back to school, <laughs> which used to live in his desk at Eton, amongst other things. And one returned to school, they couldn't find it. They found it up a curtain in the library. Oh, so it was just, <laughs> these things just gave me such an insight into mm -hmm. life here. But he and his brother, Prince Frederick, mm -hmm. were very much a part of their life and mm -hmm. his younger sisters. Mm -hmm. So I would love to share that with you. I found oh. it heartwarming and sad and then you know and it was just he was an amazing man Prince Victor mm. I really liked him and I found the story of his father fascinating 
Wow, and it was really tragic in so many ways because he was so young. You know, he was 11 when he signed this Treaty of Lahore and his kingdom was taken from him and the Kohinoor and all the treasures. And then he's brought up uh, by a Scottish family and uh, he's, um, they were really nice to him. They were, they were very good. But it was this alienation. He didn't know where he belonged. He became very English. He did. And, and then later on, he wanted he, to find his Indian roots again. So yeah, he went back. Yeah. And then he probably converted away from Christianity. But, exactly. But Queen Victoria gave him the anchor because he spent mm-hmm. a lot of time at Windsor Castle. Mm-hmm. And that's where he'd be staying when his son, mm-hmm. Prince Victor, was at school with the Lord oh, Carnarvon. Right. And what was so nice to me was, again, Lord Carnarvon just really liked him. Mm-hmm. Slightly different, mm-hmm. rather fun. Mm-hmm. And oh, they went a on a lot story. of escapades <laughs> all around the world. And he also took him sailing. Mm-hmm. Prince Victor didn't really have any much money and he was always in trouble. Mm. But Lord Carnarvon always franked him, so that didn't really matter. <laughs> and they were there when um, Prince Victor's... They were together in Berlin when Prince Victor's father died in Paris. Mm-hmm. So there's all these lovely stories. So many stories. links, yeah, yeah. And it's, well, their friendship is a lovely story, isn't it? Friendship is always a good story. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, so did Arthur Conan Doyle remain in touch throughout his whole life or mm-hmm. um, reverting to the mystery mm-hmm. of the Parsi lawyer? He did, he did. He was, when he got married, one of the guests, so this was his second marriage, uh, he'd fallen in love with this woman much younger than him called Jill Lecky, and he marries her. And one of the guests at the wedding is uh, none other than George Adalji. And he must have been, I mean, he was a very awkward, shy, introvert sort of person, and he must have felt like, like he was, you know, surrounded by the top authors, the publishers, the star cast. It was a very exclusive wedding reception. And there's George Adalji probably standing in a corner watching everybody. Uh, but Arthur Conan Doyle writes that he was the guest he was proudest of. So again, that's so sweet. Wow. <laughs> he writes that in his memoir. <laughs> that is amazing. Mm. Because you put across the awkwardness so well (laughs) in the book. It's absolutely fascinating, as well as the rural remoteness of the the living to which they were sent. Mm -hmm. And I wonder sometimes the wisdom of that, because there might have been better livings. And I sometimes think with the church today... It's finding the right living for the right vicar, which mm-hmm. is still very much a, mm-hmm. a point of contention. Yeah. It's like having somebody who wishes to teach history mm-hmm. being forced to teach Latin. Of course. And it doesn't sort of quite work. And I, yeah. I found that a really hard decision. So I, I paused like a car <laughs> that was having struggled changing gear yeah. at different points in the story because some of what unfolded was unnecessary. Yeah, but I sometimes wondered if he'd been a vicar in London, you know, would this have happened? Probably not. But it was a recipe for disaster. Here's a man with a very pronounced Indian accent, um, you know, preaching a brown man with a white wife, three, you know, what they'd call uh, the sort of half-caste in those days, half-caste children. And he's preaching the word of God to an all-white parish. I know. It was, going, it was a recipe for disaster. So when actual tragedy happens uh, and there's a crime, you know, who do you catch? Who do you suspect? It's this odd family living in the vicarage. It's got to be them. 
I thought they showed such resilience mm-hmm. and acceptance of a difficult life. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, I know that's part of perhaps the teachings of Christianity, but I sometimes quite like the teachings of ancient Egypt mm-hmm. with its colour, with its love, with its embrace and its warmth and its mm-hmm. positivity, mm-hmm. which I sometimes think, well, actually, maybe I'll go Amun and Mutway. They embraced people mm-hmm. and, and kind of looked up mm-hmm. rather than sort of the stoical attitude, which is, sure. which again, I sort of very much yeah. felt through your book. Yeah. And Parsis, I mean, there was so much ignorance as well. So Parsis, uh, they worshipped the fire uh, and the fire worshippers and they worshipped nature. So there were all these rumours floating around that, that is the reason he goes out in you know in the darkness to go sacrifice animals it's part of the custom i mean he wasn't he'd got, he was a he was a christian he sort of baptized in this church by his father his yes. father is the vicar and they had these stories and in a way people like arthur conan doyle rudyard kipling they 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 wrote these stories which made indians exotic so you know he had his he had his role to play in it, like you know, books like Sign of Four. It's the exotic, you know. It's always the treasure, the the bandits, the treasures, yeah. the the maharajas. The so there is there's always this sense of mutiny. You're either a maharaja with a secret, or you've got some treasures that are cursed, maybe, etc. So it you know there is there is this myth around them, and I think it it all builds up when there is this horrendous crime in the village. (laughs) Can I ask you, what was the starting point? What was the sentence that you read Mm -hmm. which then turned your mind into Mm -hmm. writing the book? Um, It was actually a little article in the Times and the article said that there was going to be an auction and the uh, the auction was to be of letters uh, to Arthur Conan Doyle, to and from Arthur Conan Doyle, from the police chief who handled the Idalji case. And for me, I said, wow, I need to find out what's in these boxes. And um, this was in 2015. And I said, got to find out. Because Arthur Conan Doyle had written about it, but this would be the backstory. This would be what happened, you know, what the what police the were letters? thinking. They're there. They were. <laughs> yes, I Who actually prayed. Oh, it was Portsmouth Library. Thank goodness. I said, oh, oh please God. let it not go to a private collector somewhere in the, you know, some American somewhere and I'll never see them again. But no, it was bought by the library and they have the um, Arthur Conan Doyle collections. So it's open for everyone to see. And I made an appointment as soon as they'd classified it. And I was in there looking at the boxes. So, yeah, amazing stuff. And revelations that shocked me, which even Arthur Conan Doyle wouldn't have known, which is that the police were laying traps to, when he started his investigation, the chief of police, he's actually laying false trails so that... Conan Doyle trips up, couldn't believe it. And he's so proud of it. (laughs) He puts it in the files. Uh, And so, yeah, it was all very much line of duty in many ways, you know, police corruption, everything. He even forged, admits forging one of the letters to George Hidalchi, saying I did it to trap him. (laughs) So all these revelations, you know, it just made such a fantastic story. (laughs) That was, but those are some really important points. Mm Mm-hmm. Who judges the judges as usual, isn't it? Who judges those in power? Absolutely. Which never changes. We're still there with so many ways today. So, plus ça change again. So you've published this book. Mm -hmm. Do you begin to think about your next one or not yet? 
Well, I published in the pandemic, which wasn't fun. Yes, um, same for me. Oh. <laughs> And then, you know, I just needed a break uh, with mm. everything going on. So it took a while, but I was thinking, yeah. Mm. So I do have, I've just started researching. I was in India in April and I've started, done, just begun some research into the next. So let's see, let's see where it takes me. <laughs> it usually takes a while to get things clear in my head and then, yes. yeah. but it'll be another sort of unknown story. <laughs> no, I'm absolutely <laughs> sure it will. And I've so enjoyed your book, so I look forward okay. to the next one. I think I did enjoy your, the historical book about the million and a half men in World War. Mm-hmm. But I loved Victorian Abdul, and I've loved what I found about Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. So I hope you'll enjoy that book as well. And I do recommend actually all of Shravani's books to you. So go on bookshops or Amazon, but just enjoy them. And we all need to read over the summer. Oh, yes. And I look forward to reading yours, Fiona, because that is a topic that really excites me, as it does half the world. Well, I think you'll enjoy um, the bit about Prince Victor Julepstein, because I really enjoyed that. And I did a bit of the backstory there as well about his father. I look forward to that. To try to give him his setting, because Mm -hmm. he went on so many holidays with this family, and they Mm -hmm. were all embraced and welcomed. That made me feel happy, Yeah, which is good. That's lovely. Shravani, (laughs) thank thank you. you so much for sitting with me here today. And may you unearth many many more extraordinary stories oh thank you so much and i hope and i hope more films are made <laughs> well some have been options so let's keep our fingers crossed <laughs> oh wonderful thank you shravani <laughs> Just to remind you, please do subscribe to this podcast. Then you can have it every time it comes out.